I'm Scott Colborn, and it's great to be here with you. How are you guys and gals doing? What's your Saturday looking like? Are you, uh, are you going to have a good day? <clears throat> I'm starting out with a, uh, a reasonable expectation of a good day. We've got a good show for you, and then I'm going to play a bunch of guitar. How's that sound? Oh, yeah, and some black coffee in my cup. Hey, with me is Jim Shorney. And Jim, um, what are you doing over there? Uh, doing some phone card accounting. Well, it's great to have you here. I hope you've had a good week. I had a great week, and it's great to have some fresh phone cards. So thank you to our donors. Yep, and I'll get to those just as soon as you pass me those there. There you go. Hey, I'd, l- I'd like to uh, thank Shelley from Canada. And uh, she has given many phone cards in the past. She said, good morning, Scott. I got your message about needing phone cards. The last time you needed cards, myself and Rosemary Ellen Guiley responded. I was very sad to hear of her passing this summer. I'd like to donate this card in her honor. Through her website and her mailing list was how I discovered your show. Uh, so we're going to do the show today in your honor, Shelley, and in the honor of uh, and memory, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Thank you so much. And my friend who does not want to be identified, I'm going to call him Frank from Omaha. Frank donated a card and said, uh, let's see, uh, just happy to help you keep up the good work. No need to thank me, so... How about if I half thank you by saying Frank? <laughs> okay, we, we thank you, uh, Frank and Shelley, very, very much. Let's start the show off here with uh, Charlene and Pet Talk with the Capital Humane Society. She should be about right there. Hi, Charlene. Good morning. How are you this fine morning? Oh, doing really well. Loving the weather. What's going on at the Capital Humane Society? We are looking forward to having a lot of visitors today, and we've got great dogs, cats, and a cute couple of rabbits available for adoption. Um, Some of our events still coming up are Pet Pictures with Santa. Um, We did that last night, and we're going to do that again Tuesday on uh, November 19th, and you can learn more and uh, about how to set up an appointment uh, by going to our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. What sort of gifts do the animals ask for? (laughs) Um, I'm thinking along the lines of treats and toys. Chew toys and kibble and... Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'd like to have... uh... And a owner or a friend that's going to love them as much as they can, they can love them. Sure. Absolutely. Hey, I've got cats and kittens queued up. Who's first up on your list, Charlene? We're going to start with Matilda. And Matilda looks a little bit shy in her picture. She's a very sweet cat. She is front declawed, looking for an indoor-only home where she's nice and safe. She's about two years old, soft, short fur, looking again for a family that has a quiet space so she can relax and have fun. What a sweetie. Waltzing Matilda. I was waiting for that. Waltzing Matilda. You'll come waltzing Matilda with me. 
That's all the, I know. That's the, all I remember. The look, the look on her face is saying, please stop singing. <laughs> what a great-looking cat. I don't think I've ever heard of a cat named Matilda before. I think okay. it might be one of our first. Could be. You're, you're breaking new ground here. <laughs> okay, who's up next? Next up is Polly. And Polly is a very pretty four-year-old spade female domestic short hair. She's very friendly, loves to roll and purr and roll and purr some more. So she's looking to be someone's charming companion. I think she's looking to chase whatever the photographer has in their hand. <laughs> yeah, don't get too much of a crick in your neck there, Polly. You are really <clears throat> one beautiful cat. People can take a look at Polly's picture by going to CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Matilda, Polly, and... Spice. Uh. And Spice is about two years old, a neutered male, a gorgeous orange tabby cat. Uh, hoping that the next person that comes through that door is going to adopt him. He is really, really nice and hopes that today is his lucky day. Look at that. I am gorgeous. Uh -huh. Just come and get me. Yep. Wasn't that, that word and term featured in uh, Frank Herbert's book, The Dune Series? Yeah, but I don't think it referred to cats. This is a it's, beautiful cat. That's something to do with giant worms. I, I don't I don't think Charlene has any of those down there. <laughs> Not today. Yeah. CapitalHumaneSociety.org is the uh, place to go to look, look at these cats. Better yet, here's Charlene with hours open. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. And again, asking that proverbial question, who let the dogs out? We now turn to dogs and puppies for adoption. And who's first up? We'll start with Bella, and she is a pretty brindle pit bull, about two years old. She has on a little leash. I'm not sure if you can read that, but it says, never naughty, always nice, <laughs> <laughs> which is very true for pretty Bella. Uh, she does have a ton of energy and needs an experienced owner who can work with her and provide her with the exercise and training she needs to be her best self. Okay, a uh, great-looking dog, Bella, pictures at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Bella is joined by... Next up is Lucy, and Lucy is about 12 years old, a Maltese mix, looking for a family that does not have any other dogs. She wants to be your one and only canine, and she does need some training yet. But she is just a little fun friend and will enjoy going for walks and then snuggling on the couch. So we hope today somebody asks to adopt Lucy. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. The old uh, phrase from the Beatles song. This is a great looking right. Lucy that would love to be here. Lucy Goosey. She would uh, have lots of fun in your domicile. Uh, always make sure that you can have a dog if you're renting by talking to the landlord first. Sometimes there's a pet deposit. Um, Lucy's a great-looking dog, and our third dog is? We're going to do the perfect pair, and that is Pappy and Ellie. And they are chihuahuas. <laughs> Very cute. 
Sappy can be a little bit shy, but Ellie's always ready to make new friends. Uh, but once Pappy gets to know you, then he just jumps up in your lap and is a very friendly dog as well. Um, so they are looking for a family that's ready for two cute canines. Uh, they are looking for a home without children just because that can make them a little bit nervous. So if you think they might be the perfect pair for you, we hope you'll visit us soon. <laughs> Pappy and Ellie, the two chihuahuas, or as Les Nesman used to say, the two chihuahuas. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, uh, fun dogs pictures are up at capitalhumanesociety.org, or better yet, you can go out and see these, uh, these cool dogs this weekend. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We are open today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. Okay, a football game starting pretty soon, Wisconsin and Nebraska. And yes, I heard. Personally, two of my favorite teams. So um, I'm going to resurrect an old moniker, an old uh, nickname by which the Nebraska team was known. I'm going to say, Go Bug Eaters. <laughs> Sounds good. Of course, cheeseheads are pretty good too. You know, you gotta, you gotta love that. No, I, I like Wisconsin a lot, uh, except when they're playing Nebraska. So, should be a fun game. Um, we'll see if I have anybody listening after eleven o'clock this morning. But, <laughs> <laughs> hey, we thank you so much for all your great work out there. <clears throat> have a great rest of weekend. Thank you for your support. Have a great day. Okay, to see those great Chihuahuas <laughs> and the rest of the dogs and cats for adoption, uh, please visit the Capital Humane Society and make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. Our main guest coming up today is going to be uh, Nick Redfern, the author of so many books it is hard to keep up with. He's got a brand new one out that... Uh, is called The Alien Book, A Guide to Extraterrestrial Beings on Earth. And uh, it's a book by Visible Ink Press. I really like how they, um, they publish books. They are luxurious. They are bigger than a normal paperback. Uh, they're really a nice, nice book. So looking forward to talking to our friend Nick Redfern coming up in a little bit. First up is Lloyd Arbach. And Lloyd is the author of many books on parapsychology. He's taught at the collegiate level. Uh, he's a researcher actively going out and investigating alleged haunts and places where mysterious things happen. And he's uh, of late been teaching classes through the Rhine Education Center. He's also active in the Forever Family Foundation. And boy, with that introduction, Lloyd, how can you go wrong? That's true, Scott. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm doing great. Where do you want to jump in at? Because there's so much to talk about. Tell us, tell us how Lloyd Arbach is. Uh, well, um, Blue Fire, I, was, I spent a little time in uh, traveling last month. So uh, in the last week, I've been in Durham and Raleigh in North Carolina. Since the time at the Ryan Research Center, in fact. Lloyd, you are a uh, more seasoned traveler than I. I tried to fly out of Las Vegas on Monday morning, November 4th, only to find out that thousands of people 
from a big concert over the weekend were also trying to find out. And uh, there were so many people in front of us that once we got through the TSA security lines, we missed our flight. Yeah, that can happen. That's why it's worth when you're traveling, uh, if you're going to travel a lot to get that TSA pre-check thing, which is what I have right now. I travel a lot for work, so I Mm -hmm. kind of have to make sure that I'm on time. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what is going on of note here at the Rhine Research Center? Well, um, I, I think first I can talk a little bit about their uh, biophoton research. They're really doing research on the subtle energies of the body, kind of dealing with energy healing and what people call chi, uh, martial artists producing chi and such other energies. And I think most people are probably unaware that our bodies actually give off light, uh, invisible, mostly in ultraviolet, and at a very, very subtle rate. So, so low level, you would never be able to see it, even if they were visible photons. Uh, something on the order of one to five particles of light per second, which is next to nothing. Mm-hmm. And the supposition of the research is that since if you look in history and look in in art and witness descriptions, healers and others have been thought to have a halo or they glow or something when they're doing their healing, even though there's really been no, I guess more recent evidence of that from first-hand witnesses, uh, they decided to try to do some research and got a grant to check and see if healers produce an increased number of biophotons, photons coming off the body. And uh, so they set up a, a, a couple of different labs to be able to measure this. And it, it's a really interesting thing because you really have to um, black out a room. So they have set up a couple of rooms that are not only painted black, but there is just literally no light, light leakage coming into the room. And they use a, something called a photomultiplier to really detect any photons coming off the person. And with the researcher sitting outside the room and communicating via intercom of some kind or walkie-talkie, they have the healers in there just sitting quietly, and they kind of get a baseline, and then they'll have the healer turn on, I guess you could say, start doing their thing, ramp up their energy. If it's a martial artist trying to direct chi at the photomultiplier, but everything's directed at the device to see if they can actually get an increase in that. Interesting. And what you'll get is, from some of these folks, is a really interesting, and sometimes extremely high level of increase. Still not visible because it is ultraviolet, but really interesting. Sometimes hundreds of thousands of times the one or two biophotons they have. Wow. So it's a very measurable expenditure of energy then yeah you know it is measurable and there's actually a couple of journals out now that are looking at biophoton energy and there are there's outside of what the Rhine's doing i know that there are some folks who are looking at possibly using biophoton emissions as a way of diagnosing illness and uh, looking at what's happening in the body The uh, conference I just attended in Laughlin, Nevada, had among the speakers there uh, Russell Targ. 
who was associated with Stanford Research Institute. And uh, when I uh, met Mr. Targ and heard his presentation, Lloyd, I thought immediately of you and many of our past conversations. Um, have you seen his movie called Third Eye Spies? I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Um, I know it's, it focuses heavily on the time period that he worked on. Um, you know, there, Russell worked, was one of the originators of the Stargate program, although back then it was called the Sunstreak was the first name for it. They had a number of different names, you know, for Black Project, they always do that. Mm-hmm. And it was Russell, Targ, and Hal Putoff who really worked with Ingo Swan to come up with the methodology for basic remote viewing. Uh, and uh, Russell was associated with the program for a number of years, but then ended up leaving, as did Hal Putoff. So the folks I've been working with were taking over after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Angela Thompson-Smith was one of the remote viewers uh, that was also there at the, at the presentation. Um, and... Uh, I'm just sorry that I can't remember his name. There was another gentleman that later on became a director of that uh, army army major. I just I can't bring him up right now. But uh, anyhow, I thought about you, Lloyd, and we did a remote viewing experiment, um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, many of the people in the room uh, got close enough in their drawing of what Russell Targ had in a gym bag that they would probably qualify indeed for a a direct hit. Um, Okay, so I I looked at the Rhine Education Center, and um, you have taught classes that I think are are almost winding up. What's what's in store in the future? Uh, Well, we're we're just deciding what the courses are going to be for the next, you know, couple quarters semesters or quarters Mm -hmm. uh i believe that we'll be starting the first course first round of courses because john crook who's the executive director is also an exceptional teacher there we'll be teaching something um and we should be starting around the last week of january the first week of february for that and i will be most likely doing uh, the investigations class uh, although we, we haven't really finalized that, that'll be coming soon. And uh, also, of course, in the technology that is being used in ghost hunting uh, and what is actually working and what is not, looking at the kind of the, the tech angle, the measurement angle in investigations. So that's a separate course altogether, kind of a fun course. Um, that'll be probably in the late spring. I should be teaching a course on how to choose a psychic. That's one of the ones we want to actually offer, which will probably be offered in March. That'll be a four-week class. Uh, the Ryan Research, the Ryan Education Center actually offers courses that can be taken towards a certificate, in which case you are being graded, or those same courses can just be taken for fun. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of my students typically, uh, I say in certain courses, it's half the students. Uh, the one I just taught, the science of ESP, was really four students out of uh, 12 that took it for a grade. So most of the students do take things for fun. Mm-hmm. And the how to choose a psychic is really how to evaluate a psychic reading, how to, how to find a good psychic, 
what to do with this information once you actually get it. And it talks about how to beware and be on the lookout for signs that the person you're dealing with is faking it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a fun course we teach. A very valuable course. And that, that segues also into another um, organization that you're uh, involved in, the Forever Family Foundation. And uh, people will sometimes ask me, um, <clears throat> as if I have a clue, um, who is a good psychic medium? And of late, I've been saying, you know, my friend and colleague, Lloyd Arbach, is associated with the Forever Family Foundation, and they have certified psychic mediums that they can recommend to people. Um, is that a fairly yeah, elaborate Yeah, actually, process, our or? website has a list of our mediums and contact for them. And yeah. that's uh, foreverfamilyfoundation.org. Uh, so that's one place you can go. Also, the Winbridge Research Center has uh, put mediums through a rigorous training program and, you know, a certification program. Uh, a certain, they, they have 19 on their list, and there are many, many of them are actually forever family mediums who are capable of really doing readings from a, from a distance away. Uh, you know, many people want to see the medium in person, but that's not necessarily geographically possible. Mm-hmm. And most of the mediums, certainly the mediums for Winbridge, which is winbridge.org, and it's just like it sounds, Winbridge. Um, most mediums, even for forever family, will do either Skype or phone readings and do quite well at that. And, uh, in fact, some of them do better if they're not in the room with you, which is interesting. Okay, winbridge.org. Um, Lloyd, thank you so much for your involvement with the program, um, and I've appreciated the, the personal times. I've, I've had the pleasure of being in your company um, in the Lincoln area, and at some point I hope we can do that again. Sounds good, Scott. Have a great rest of the weekend, Lloyd. Thank you for being here. Thanks, you too. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Lloyd Arbach and the Ryan Education Center org would be a good resource foreverfamilyfoundation.org or as Lloyd alluded to winbridge.org I'm Scott Colborn and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena our main guest is coming up after a break here and that's Nick Redfern we've got his big coffee table size book here It's called The Alien Book, A Guide to Extraterrestrial Beings on Earth. And stay tuned. We're going to be right back after this. Great to be here on this uh, really bright and sunny Saturday morning. We're expecting a high here in the 60s, which is uh, moving in the right direction after we had bitter cold here. It's a little unseasonable for this time of year, but we'll take it. You bet we will. Nick Redfern joins us. Nick is the author of many, many books. Um, a lot of them are published by Visible Ink Press. Area 51, The Revealing Truth of UFOs, Secret Aircraft, Cover-Ups and Conspiracies, The Bigfoot Book, The Encyclopedia of Sasquatch, Yeti, Encrypted Primates, Secret History, Conspiracies from Ancient Aliens to the New World Order, The Monster Book, Creatures, Beasts, and Fiends of Nature. 
And I'm holding in my hand a brand new book by Visible Ink Press, and it's called The Alien Book, A Guide to Extraterrestrial Beings on Earth. Now, please welcome back to the broadcast, Nick Redfern. Hi, Nick. Good morning. Hey, Scott. How's it going? It's going great. Uh, where do we find you this Saturday morning? Uh, you find me in Arlington, Texas, which is uh, where I live, just sort of halfway between Dallas and Fort Worth. And uh, finally, we're warming up a little bit. Uh, last week, it actually got down to 27, <laughs> which is really low for us in sort of October, November. Oh, yes, it is. Wow. Isn't it strange, some of the weather patterns? It's almost as if the Earth is tilted. Well, I mean, I'm, whatever's causing it, I'm glad at least right now it's, uh, it's not 27. So. Uh, Nick, what was it that, that had you move from um, the United Kingdom to Texas? Oh, well, um, I got a, a job offer a long time ago. This was sort of 20 years ago when I moved to the U.S., and... Um, and I enjoyed it over here and um, and then went through the whole immigration process and um, and that was basically it. It was sort of pretty, you know, a sort of simple scenario, really. I just didn't have ties in the UK and so, well, you know, why not make a change? Mm-hmm. And uh, Texas is almost like a country unto itself with customs and behaviors and... Um, have you found that interesting when you traveled a bit and gone to other parts of, you know, the United States, for example? Um, in some ways. I mean, for example, like Fort Worth is very different. You know, Fort Worth is uh, how I guess most people sort of perceive Texas, you know. Mm-hmm. But Dallas is very is very much like just a, a regular, you know, big city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were sort of blindfolded and brought into Dallas, I, I don't think you would you know, be able to tell if it was any number of U.S. cities. So I think more sort of West Texas um, is sort of the image that a lot of people have of Texas. But, you know, I, I love living in Texas. You know, I've been here 20 years. If I if I didn't love Texas, <laughs> I wouldn't be there for 20 years. You know? <laughs> um, you've got so many writing projects that you're involved in, uh uh, it's been interesting, Nick, to have you on the show before talking about your your approach to writing, and you treat it like a nine to five job, don't you? Well, I do in the sense of how I work, but I mean, I wouldn't want people think to think what I do is just a job. You know, it's also a a passion, and I still have the enthusiasm for it all that I had, you know, when I first got into this these subject as a kid. So, you know, in that sense. Um, I'll keep doing it as long as I have the enthusiasm and I don't see why that should change, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the actual, how I work, yeah, I like to sort of do nine to five, Monday to Friday. And then that gives me weekends off and evenings off. So, um, and I think, you know, that way you don't get frazzled and, you know, start over each day. And, um, and for me, you know, I mean, lots of different people, I'm sure do it different ways. I have friends who, sort of like to uh, ride through the night. Um, but for me, like I said, you know, I like to get up, have breakfast, work till five, and then I put the laptop in um, sleep mode and I don't touch it again till um, like eight in the morning and weekends, uh, Friday afternoon, four or five o'clock, shut it down. And I don't touch the laptop again till Monday morning. I, I don't check anything. I don't see what's going on. 
I just walk away for two days and then mm-hmm. start again on Monday, like you know most people who have a job do the same. You know, <laughs> I would I would guess that in the writing project, with the focus being on a subject that you're pulling information together for, you probably in that investigative mode come across other things that you go that would be an interesting sidebar or a project unto itself yeah you're right i think one of the things i found more than any other is the sort of the angle of things just happening out of the blue or pushing you down different avenues and you know a new project this kind of thing that you weren't sort of anticipating going to happen but you know i like that i like the sort of unpredictability of you know you sort of suddenly out the blue somebody contacts you with an amazing story to investigate so um mm-hmm. yeah you know i think um that's that's part of the um you know the lure to the subject you know what, what sort of makes me to keep push on uh, pushing on is because you know there are so many fascinating things to investigate and um and there's always something new as well which which is good and, you know i think um if it was just a case of going over old ground, I mean, it would be, what's the point? You know, we've seen it and heard it all before. So you know, I always try and, um, you know, present new material and um, new slants and new theories on, on cases and things like this and um, and hopefully, you know, share the information um, to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. I, I have to be honest with you. I expected when I picked the book up, which, by the way, I love your association with Visible Ink Press. I think they do just a, a bang-up job of publishing books. Oh, they do. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, I expected this book, when I picked it up and looked at the cover and the title, to be kind of a listing of the various um, mm-hmm. races of sentient beings that are coming here the the Nordics, the Greys, uh, but it's much more than that. Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't really want to... When um, Roger, the, the owner of uh, Visible Ink Press, uh, Roger Janecki, asked me, you know, would I be interested in doing a book that is sort of like, um, not so much an A to Z, but, um, you know, a study of numerous different types of aliens that people have seen. Now... What I didn't want to do was just have you like entries where it was saying something like allegedly came from this place, height five foot cut four, mm-hmm. you know, color of skin green, that kind of thing. I mean, that would just get boring, you know, after probably three or four pages even. Um, so what we basically decided upon um, was to have sort of multiple chapters, lengthy and descriptive chapters. On some of the some of the well-known cases, um, but also a lot of um, obscure ones, but also very intriguing ones, and um, that's what I, you know, I've done with the book is to present all the different types of creatures that the people have described. Because I think most people, you think of aliens, certainly people who are outside of the UFO research field, you know, you think of aliens, you think of little thing, little creatures with 
big heads and black eyes. You know, everybody knows that image of what aliens are supposed to look like. But part of the reason to, uh, for writing the book was to demonstrate that that is just one aspect of a far bigger picture. And it's a, it's a big picture you present, and it's a very, very interesting book. Um, this last week, I was up very late. Um, my habit is, is basically, uh, I'm a night owl, so uh, I get my day done and responsibilities met, and then I can sit back with a cup of coffee and, and uh, dig into a book. I never, never watch TV. I just, you know, there's no, with all these great books, there's no reason to. And so I found this very, very interesting. Um, did you did you order the chapters uh, in a particular way because of a, a reason? Well, I, I, what I tried to do more than anything else was to vary the stories. So, in other words, um, I felt that if it was just, you know, this kind of alien and then a similar one and a similar one after that, it would it would kind of get boring, you know, or predictable. So I actually went out of my way to make sure that each subsequent chapter was very different to the one previous to it, and, and the same with the next chapter as well. You know, I wanted people to be able to read a chapter, say, on reptilian-type aliens, and then the one after that could be the so-called Space Brothers, which are these sort of very human-looking aliens, um, you know, where there's no connection between the two, but when you, you know, you finish with one chapter, then the next one is a completely different story. And I felt that was better than, um, than just doing the approach of, wow, you know, this, is, this, one, this chapter is similar to this one and that one's similar to this. I, I wanted to deliberately, you know, make them all different. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that we're being visited and have been visited my own perspective, Nick, is beyond dispute as to who they are and where they're coming from mm. and the why, those are all still open questions. Um, we have major organizations that are really firmly entrenched in a particular cosmological view. Um, I detect from this book and from other of your works that you're saying these sentient beings, these creatures, these entities could come from a variety of places. So your approach is more uh, a Charles Fort Fordian approach. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, like with you, that there, these visitations and encounters are occurring. Now, you know, the book is titled The Alien Book. And alien, you know, is essentially something in, in the terms of the book, you know, is non-human. Now, you know, we could be looking at, like, literal extraterrestrial creatures from this star system or that planet or this planet. Um, but we could also be looking at sort of like multidimensional creatures like for example things like quantum physics today are allowing for the existence of um, multiple dimensions so possibly some of these creatures you know they are alien in the way we use that term in regards to unknown creatures or unidentified creatures but 
some of them may not be sort of making massive you know journeys from this star system or that star system it may just be something along the lines of flitting in and out of one reality and into another dimension which might explain you know the sort of huge proliferation of reports and sightings you know if they are sort of coexisting with us in other dimensions that might explain why there are so many cases you know mm-hmm. because they don't have to make gigantic journeys you know they're literally at the flick, flick of a switch you know they're from their reality to our reality mm-hmm. uh, john keel i had the pleasure of meeting john when we brought him back to lincoln uh for a conference uh a funny humorous john keel anecdote <laughs> he told me that he would come back but that he wanted to warn me that he had uh nocturnal habits that were quite a bit different from most people. So he said, I'd like to have in my hotel room a cooler stocked with meat, cheese, bread, some fruits some vegetables, some beverages, so that any time, 24 hours a day, if I'm hungry, I can snack. <laughs> and we said, okay. So we outfitted the cooler and... Uh, that was in his hotel room. Sometimes he would join us for a meal. Other times he would uh, be busy. But I understand that that when most people were going to bed, he was basically getting up and starting to roam around then. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's different people have different ways and means of, of you know, how they approach what they do. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i a night owl, but I, I still like to switch up at 5 o'clock, you know. Right. So, um and I think that just demonstrates, you know, the, the nature of how different writers uh, have, you know, take their, their, their approach to what they do. And um, I, my view is whatever works for you, do it, you know. The purpose for me bringing up John Keel was that he talked about uh, window areas mm. where there appeared to be um, uh, activity that couldn't be attributed to a known source. Why is there a concentration of sightings in this area of the country? And so that window area has caused me to think for many, many years of this idea of there being a window, a doorway, a portal, some veil, if you will, that may be vibratory in nature, it may be causal, it may be um, non-causal, but something that that exists between our place in time and space and at least one other, if not multiple others. And I've now been thinking a, a fresh new way about a lot of the ghost reports that I've heard. When people are talking about a intelligent haunting where there appears to be a ghost that they're interacting with that is obviously aware of who they are, it's not uh, simply a video clip that's being played out over time. Uh, I've started thinking about maybe these same uh, experiences people are having are the result of somebody walking from another dimension through a doorway or a portal 
probably being as startled as we are to see them and encounter them, and then through some mode we don't understand, uh, going back through that and literally disappearing. Yeah, and I think that whole issue of portals and doorways, you know, hotspots, whatever you want to call them, I think in many respects, Keel was ahead of a lot of other people in ufology in, in the 60s and 70s where... You know, people were just still talking about nuts and bolts UFOs and nothing else. And, of course, that is part of it. But Keel, you know, was someone who recognized the significance of the fact that in a lot of these portal and hotspot areas, you know, somebody would see a UFO and then, you know, maybe a mile away the next night, someone would see like a Bigfoot-type creature. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, you would have two or three totally separate phenomena all in one place is highly unlikely unless as as keel suggested they were all originating in one particular place but the monster hunters didn't want to deal with the ufo researchers and the ufo researchers didn't want to deal with people who investigate nessie or bigfoot and so on Uh, but i think keel was really sort of way ahead of his time in terms of realizing all these things seem to be interconnected and in terms of coming here, that they had sort of almost like a unique way to do that that mm-hmm. didn't revolve around traversing massive distances, but literally kind of condensing time and space to ensure that, um, you know, something that would, for us, would take absolutely thousands of years, you know, to reach another star system, but, you know, potentially you could use these wormholes, portals as a means to do it almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in your book, The Alien Book, there is a, a, a theory that you encapsulate that was put forward by Dr. Michael Sala as an explanation of sorts for the original Iraqi war that we had back in the 1990s. Uh, very, very interesting. Could you could you elaborate on that, Nick? Yeah, you're talking about the the writing of the of the Iraqi museum. Yeah, I'm talking about the the yeah. the portal, the Stargate. Yeah, well, this is this is an interesting area because again, it sort of ties in with some of the things you know that we've that we've been talking about, you know, and then this demonstrates it's very much sort of a an ongoing situation. But um, basically, this was in the in the second um, Iraqi war, two thousand and three, and when the war began. Um, in Iraq, and significant portions of which were fought in what was once called Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. a controversial story surfaced that basically suggested that the saga of the Anunnaki, uh, the Anunnaki being these ancient beings in Mesopotamian lore and legend that many people today believe were sort of ancient astronauts, um, was a, you know, th- there was this belief and this acceptance on the part of many that the Anunnaki were still possibly among us, or at least their legacy was. And um, and Michael uh, Sala said that he'd uncovered sort of the strands of a fantastic secret, part of which was the for the reason why the Iraqi war went ahead. And, and Sala basically said that 
people working under President Bush had stumbled upon stories suggesting that somewhere in Iraq, an ancient Anunnaki device called a Stargate existed. And so the, the theory or the story is that the, there was some element within the government or the military that was tasked with not just, um, you know, sort of um, fighting on the battlefield, but also trying to find this alleged Stargate. And the term Stargate um, is really sort of an alternative term for um, you know, hotspots, uh, you, you know, doorway, portal... That there's the sort of different titles, but it boils down to the same thing, the idea of, again, sort of jumping from one area to another at a very quick time, almost instantaneously, mm-hmm. but in doing so, you've travelled a massive distance. And, um, and you can well understand why the military of any nature, um, you know, of any country around the world, would want to get their hands on something like an ancient Stargate and to try and understand the technology that was involved um, you know, in creating one of these things. It would be the sort of the perfect delivery system, you know, in quite literally like a second. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating and intriguing story, the idea of caverns um, or, you know, chambers created to hide this technology and, um, and somebody went looking for it, you know, whether they found it that's a question that you know the, we don't know the answer to. But uh, at the height of the the second Iraqi war, there was a lot of um, debate and um, controversy and and communications about this um, Stargate scenario and, and the attempts to try and find it and replicate it. One of the anecdotes that I heard uh, regarding the story was that uh, Saddam Hussein had also found out about this and that he was going to promote the idea that he was the reincarnation of Ebenezer and that with this Stargate and this reassuming his prior identity that he was going to serve as a uniter of all the Arab countries unto, unto himself as a, uh, a ruler having come back once and for all and bringing all the Arab countries together. Another reason why it was imperative to try to stop him from doing this uh, because of some of his other uh, deviousness that he would probably be up to. So uh, the, the Stargate, if it exists, could be, as you say, buried and secreted, it could also be something that is hiding in plain sight, uh, mm-hmm. such as a, uh, a mosque that's been in use for many, many years, um, ostensibly being used for a, a different purpose. Right there in the middle of that could be the Stargate to be actuated by people, events, uh, uh, calendar, you know, all sorts of influences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I found that that really interesting, much more so than, than we had to go after more oil. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, very often situations like this do come down to, you know, sort of 
the military power. You know, anybody can come across something like a Stargate or advanced ancient technology. You know, the it makes sense that you would want to grab it first before your potential uh, enemies got the got their hands on it. You know, and um, the last thing we would want would be, you know, to some dangerous, crazy dictator getting their hands on technology, which they may just sort of decide to use it regardless, you know, um, where we hopefully, you know, would be more careful with it and and how we used it or even if we used it. So um, I think that was one of the big concerns, the idea of someone like Saddam Hussein, you know, unleashing something that he may have got his hands on. Um, and, you know, with it, because there actually were rumours, you know, just before the the attacks began on Iraq, that Hussein did say that they, you know, they had something that would surprise everybody and terrify everybody. And we never really found out what that was or if it was just, you know, bluff and bravado, that kind of thing. But it was intriguing that it was sort of said round about the time when all these rumours about, searches, secret searches for ancient extraterrestrial technology under the desert, you know. Um, the timing was intriguing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks, stay tuned. We'll be right back with more conversation with Nick Redfern. Uh, Nick, when we come back after this top-of-the-hour break, let's talk about extending this idea of a window portal of mm-hmm. uh, Zendra, if you will, okay. and then talk about... Um, some cryptoids and how that might play into that. Okay. Nick Redfern, the author of multiple books, including this brand new one that's called The Alien Book and uh, A Guide to Extraterrestrial Beings. You can find Nick Redfern on Facebook. You can also find him through his website, Nick Redfern Fortean, that's F O R T E A N. Dot blogspot.com. I'm Scott Colborn. You're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. We'll be right back. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Our special guest is a favorite among a lot of you people out there. Uh, whenever I have Nick Redford on the show, I always get people saying, gosh, I like him. Scott, you should have him back more often. So here you go. Uh, Nick, let's, let's extend this idea of a method by which these intelligent beings, these creatures, can move back and forth a window, a doorway, a portal, a zendra. Uh, how does that tie in then with cryptids, with creatures and, and monsters and beasts? Mm. Well, this sort of where it gets into, I suppose, more controversial areas. You know, when people think of aliens, you know, they think of the typical image. But you actually do find connections between the UFO phenomenon and so-called cryptids, which are like unknown animals or unidentified animals like Bigfoot and yep. Loch Ness Monster and things like that. But I, I think the the perfect example would be the, the legendary uh, Mothman saga. And uh, for people who don't know, the Mothman was this sort of flying humanoid type creature, kind of like something like a like a gargoyle almost, um, that was seen in the skies of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, from late 1966 through to 
December 1967. And you could make a case that Point Pleasant may have had some sort of temporary um, portal or doorway because what happened was that late December 66, uh, the sightings began of this sort of uh, very very tall kind of humanoid-type figure but with these large wings and people claim to have seen it sort of soaring over the skies of Point Pleasant late at night. And, of course, it terrified a lot of people who saw them. But in the weeks ahead after the Mothman sightings began, there began also a wave of UFO activity and sightings and people claimed to have met aliens late at night on the roads. And as well as that, um, you had the men in black roaming around town, warning people not to talk about their experiences with the, uh, with the Mothman or with, in relation to the UFO encounters. <coughs> now, if you think about it, to have UFOs, men in black, and the Mothman all dominated around this little city or little town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, you know, the idea that they would all suddenly appear at one time, you know, one period of just around about a year's time, um, just doesn't hold up, you know. And again, I think we're talking about a portal, but the reason why I use the term like a temporary portal is because after December 67, the whole thing was over. And... It's also intriguing and kind of tragic to note that the reason, or when, when it all came to an end in December 67, what happened was that the town's Silver Bridge, as it was called, collapsed into the Ohio River. On the one side, you have West Virginia, which is where Point Pleasant is. The other side of the Ohio River, you've got Ohio. And the, the Silver Bridge used to span the river. Uh, in December 67, however, it collapsed into the Ohio River, killing 46 people. And a lot of people in town, in Point Pleasant, believed that the presence of the Mothman was somehow behind um, the collapse of the bridge and the, the, the drowning of all the people. But then you have other people who think that the Mothman was not so much the, the cause of the disaster, but sort of a warning-type entity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people still fall into those two categories to this day. There's no real hard consensus. But, I mean, this is important because, you know, as you said, um, we're seeing not just aliens in one place. We're seeing multiple different types of phenomena, flying humanoids, UFOs, um, you know, the Mothman, and then the and then the collapse of the bridge, which has almost like a supernatural aspect to it. So, um, you know, it's a fascinating story, but as I said, one filled with tragedy and a lot of disturbing and, and weird phenomena. And um, if you, you know, there's a, a movie came out back in 2002, The Mothman Prophecies, um, starring uh, Richard Gere. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not a bad movie. It's pretty good. And, and obviously the whole story's condensed down to a couple of hours, you know. But uh, you can get a good idea from it. But, um, but John Keel, who we, we mentioned earlier, Keel sort of wrote the definitive book, The Mothman Prophecies, on which the, the movie was made. And I think, you know, quite justifiably, um, Keel will always be sort of perceived as the Mothman guy, you know. Mm -hmm. And then John Keel talked about uh, somebody apparently being in and around Point Pleasant that was impersonating him. 
Yeah, that's right. And um, this kind of ties in with the, the men in black angle because people were pretending to be keel. And in some cases, they threatened whoever this person was or these people were. They threatened the local witnesses in town. And um, and people got some people got quite irate with keel. You know, why are you threatening my wife or my husband? And keel would be like, well, I have been... Speaking to anybody, you know, or threatening anybody. And Keel came to realise that, as you say, there were people sort of stalking around town and following the witnesses and making it look like that Keel, you know, had sort of, you know, turned down another direction or or was sort of, you know, just terrifying people. And um, and he had to put the, you know, the word straight. And um, But there was also another angle to this as well. Um on a number of occasions, um, Keel got phone calls from people who said, you know, why do you keep sending your secretary out to interview me about your case, or my case, I should say, and um, when I've already given you the information? And Keel said, well, number one, I've only interviewed you once, and I don't have a secretary. And again, he came to realise that there was a woman or possibly several women posing John as John Keel's non-existent um, secretary. So there's a lot of strange things going on where Keel went from being like a detached researcher and investigator to be having become part of the story itself. Mm-hmm. You know, he became, in a strange way, a victim of the whole Mothman phenomenon too. The original movie Men in Black with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones uh, Purportedly, in that fiction-based movie, there was a super-secret government agency that was charged with monitoring the quote-unquote alien presence as it presented itself on Earth. Uh, Do you suspect from all your work, Nick, that 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 movie as a premise could be closer to the truth than not, that there is... A well, military or governmental body that is very, very super secret that is aware. And so, for example, they get a news feed that something's going on in Arlington, Texas. And so they call up two or three guys or gals and say, well, you're on the next flight to Arlington because there's something going on down there. Well, I mean, my answer to that question, um, you know, I mean, the movies, you know, they're good fun, they're good entertainment, and, you know, the public clearly loved them because they reaped in millions, I think actually, you know, close to a billion dollars for the entire franchise so far. Um, now, in the movies, as you, as you rightly point out, you know, the, the men in black work for some sort of agency of the U.S. government that is deeply buried to the point where, even the government doesn't know, you know, what's going on. Um, but I would say a good 97, 98% of the, all the cases I have on the men in black and the witnesses, and Keel got these as well, um, was that they actually don't, in, the, in reality, the men in black don't seem wholly human or normal. People describe them as having skin the colour of like a bottle of milk, you know, sort of super pale. Um, They often wear these 
sunglasses, which are more like um, ski goggles, wraparound ski goggles, and people say when they got too close to them, they could see they got these bulging large eyes, and they don't seem to understand our mannerisms, and um, there's some strange stories about the men in black um, not being understanding what food is and liquid and things like this. So a case has been made that the men in black could actually be um, extraterrestrials that sort of superficially look like us, but to protect their real sort of appearance, they they wear these fedora hats that they pull down, um, the sunglasses, and usually only come out at night so they can stay in the shadows and not show themselves too much. So in other words, although Hollywood did a good, you know, entertaining angle on the men in black and and focusing on government agents i have to say that honestly that the vast majority of the witnesses don't think that they came from the government because they were just so strange and weird looking and as if they were you know like a an alien high alien human hybrid kind of thing infiltrating um society and, and threatening ufo witnesses uh, in in honor of one of the people that just donated a prepaid phone card to our show, uh, we use those phone cards, Nick, to call yourself and other guests and to help defray the cost for the radio station here. I'm going to share a short story um, that Frank told me. And oh, cool. uh, he uh, and his family live in central Omaha. Omaha is about 60 miles away from Lincoln. Uh, I've known this man for a long, long time. And uh, one nice summer night, they were outside, he and his wife, Linda, and her father, a retired deputy county sheriff, and uh, they saw a light that came down over central Omaha and appeared to land across the valley in what they believed was a cemetery. And so after breakfast the next morning, they drove over there and entered the cemetery, parked the car, and they began looking around for of uh, any disruption, disturbance, um, if they could find out where that light had come down, did it leave any traces or any, any evidence? And uh, they're looking around, and then all of a sudden, Frank realizes that they're not alone, and he turns around, and here are these two guys that are about 20 feet away, and in back of them, on the graveled... Uh, road that winds its way through the cemetery parked right behind their car is a older uh black car they didn't hear the car pull up on the gravel that was you know 50 75 feet away they didn't hear the car doors open and shut uh just suddenly these two guys were there and they're in black suits um a pasty pale complexion and uh the guy says to Frank in a monotone, what are you doing? Why are you here? And there was a bit of menace, and if not menace, hostility in the guy's voice, the, what he was projecting. And Frank said, well, we saw something that maybe came down, maybe a meteorite or something, and we were looking around for it. And the guy says, you shouldn't be here. You need to go. You need to leave now. 
And Frank later told me that here's his father-in-law, a really gruff, retired deputy county sheriff who wouldn't take any of this from anybody in other situations. The three of them meekly agreed and got in their car and left the cemetery. Uh, As they were driving back to Frank and Linda's place, they sort of came to and started to get just a little bit irate over the treatment they just had. They were just ordered to leave a cemetery. And so Frank called the cemetery board and got somebody, a trustee, and said, you know, this wasn't right. And the man asked for a description of the car or the individuals and said that they didn't employ anybody like that. And asking people to leave was directly counter to what they wanted. They wanted people to spend time in the quiet, the solitude, visiting their loved ones, reflection, meditation, prayer. They would never order anybody to leave the cemetery. So, uh, Frank, in your honor, I'm telling your story about uh, your potential men in black experience. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of stories like that, you know, where the men in black just suddenly turn up and, you know, threaten people. And people just get this sort of creepy, weird, disturbing vibe from them as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one witness famously described the man in black as having like a mad dog look on his face. You know, that kind, you know, where you loom over a dog that doesn't know you, you know, and, uh, and it kind of, his eyes sort of, you know, bulge and you sort of back away, you know, um, that's how some people have described the men in black. It's just like this sense of menace and, and danger and and not really understanding how or why, but a feeling that they they need to get away from them, you know. Um, you've also got a chapter on the women in black. Mm. Well, yeah, again, that was... I wanted to include that chapter because, again, this is like one of the very lesser-known aspects of the Men in Black mystery. Now, it's intriguing that in... You know, I mentioned earlier that the Men in Black are sort of described as having very pale skin. They're skinny themselves, and they wear these fedora hats and wraparound sunglasses. Well, that's very similar to the Women in Black, who are a sort of lesser-known aspect of the UFO subject but no less intriguing and interesting. Um, Now, as far as the women in black are concerned, they too have this sort of very pale skin, you know, boring, uh, sort of bearing on almost like, um, you know, almost like a white, literally white skin. And, but on top of that as well, whereas the men in black wear these pulled down fedora hats so you can't see too much of their forehead and eyes, the, the women in black are very often described as having these sort of long black wigs, which sounds really bizarre, but they have their, all the witnesses have said the, the wigs, which they clearly were, were in like a, a bang style. So in other words, you know, it was like, a, like you know, the, the, the hair just coming right down to the eyebrows and then sort of around, you know, each side of the face. So you couldn't, again, see too much of them. And I think this angle of dressing in black and the sunglasses and the wig or the fedoras, I think it really is done to camouflage the ways that they actually look. That if we were to see them in their reality, um, in a normal state, they would look something like us, but significantly different as well. 
Um, and the sort of the modus operandi of the women in black is just the same. If somebody sees a UFO or has a UFO or, or paranormal encounter and there's a knock on the door late the next night and there's this woman in black at the door and the witnesses often feel sort of mind control to allow them to come into the house. Because if you think about it, most people, if you get a knock on the door at 11 o'clock at night, you're not going to let them in. You know, and if you sort of take a peek through the window and you see one or two or three characters dressed in black, you know, just standing there, you're almost certainly not going to let them in. But the weird thing is people do let them in. And with hindsight afterwards, they felt as if they'd been sort of hypnotized or mind controlled to allow them to come into the into the home and from there they the women in black and men in black they then start threatening people and warning them never to talk about things that they had seen or encountered and to demonstrate particularly with the women in black um the sheer fear that the people exhibit in these cases i've got some cases where for example the witnesses shared the information with me uh, in one case in 2017, but the experience occurred in 1963, and the witness had stayed silent for all those decades, only deciding finally to speak out in 2017. And I said, well, I said something along the lines of, you know, well, why did it take so long for you to share the story? And the witness basically said that they were terrified that if they started to talk about it, the woman in black would come back. So, mm-hmm. you know, these cases are really sort of chilling in the sense that they have a major um, power, if you like, over the witnesses to the point where they just do not want to talk about it, or at least they, you know, they wait a long, long time before they finally choose to do so. Uh, Nick writes about a rancher in Millville, New York who sees a flying saucer with what looks like a ladder extended below it, and then the ladder is retracted and the craft leaves the area. Uh, several days later, this guy lives out in the boonies, out in the middle of no place. There's a knock on his door, and he opens it, and there's a uh, gypsy woman who's dressed in a gray dress that reaches her ankles and sandals. Um, like so many of the men in black, her skin was noted for its deep olive complexion. Her eyes were described as oriental. She's about five foot four, long hair that was so black it looked dyed. Um, the woman said to the slightly alarmed uh, rancher, quote unquote, I have traveled a long way. May I have a glass of water? I must take a pill. So she waits he quickly fetches the glass of water and she watch he watches as she swallows a round green pill she thanks him turns and walks away which he found <clears throat> in retrospect very strange because he lives on a back road and walking to the nearest town would be an arduous task and then you say that John Keel said that this odd episode with that phrase, I have traveled a long way, is an old Masonic passphrase and is frequently used. The, the pill-taking is also a common procedure. 
That's right. You get a lot of um, abductees, alien abductees, talking about before the encounter occurred in terms of, you know, the ab actual abduction itself. You know, the, um, the, the aliens give them pills to take uh, before, you know, the procedure um, in the UFO goes ahead. And, um, and stories like that, this sort of the, the gypsy woman, I mean, they're so strange because um, you, you mentioned quite correctly that the witness lived in quite literally the middle of nowhere. But it's almost as if the men in black and the women in black, and in this case, the, the gypsy woman, somehow they seem to know when the witness has seen something, even if they haven't told family or friends or the police or the local media, mm -hmm. somehow they seem to know about it. And usually within at most a day or two, sometimes it's just hours even later, but you know, they suddenly manifest at the door doorstep and, um, and start making these weird statements that really, you know, concern people. You know, this idea of just... Just making bizarre statements, you know. I need a glass of water to take a pill. You know, the, the, just the just this angle, you know, kind of um, worries people and disturbs them because they're dealing with creatures, if you like, that look like us superficially, but have such a strange uh, approach to dealing with us. And that's one of the things that people who've had these encounters, whether the women in black or the men in black, is that they remember them because the experiences were so weird and so creepy. Mm -hmm. uh, folks, stay tuned. We've got more conversation with, with Nick Redfern. I hope you're enjoying the conversation, folks, as much as I am. Stay right there. We'll be right back after this. Our conversation with Nick Redfern continues. Uh, Nick, extending that idea of the window or portal, uh, there are so many accounts of Bigfoot that I've heard mm. where a Bigfoot or plural Big Feet, Bigfoot, are seen and they are tracked to an area that should give impressions of footprints. Perhaps it's a clearing, if you will. And the tracks simply stop. Um, expert trackers make sure that they haven't backtracked by using the old technique of trying to step backwards in your own footsteps and then making a big jump off and, and getting away that way. Uh, they, it looks like they just wander into a place on ground that should have provided more and then they simply stop. And those have always intrigued me. Well, yeah, I mean, they should intrigue everybody because, you know, um, there's a lot of weirdness surrounding Bigfoot. Um, now, when I say Bigfoot, you know, um, for people who aren't sort of wholly familiar with it, we're not talking about just one creature, you know, charging all around the United States. It's not like that. You know, Bigfoot basically the term you know can explain or describe one or multiple numbers of these creatures um but the i guess the the accepted scenario within the field of cryptozoology which is the study of unknown animals most people take the view <coughs> excuse me that um the, the the bigfoot creatures are some sort of unknown unidentified north american ape kind of like the North American equivalent of an African gorilla, something along those lines. 
But the fact is, you know, there is a, a significant body of data that pushes the Bigfoot mystery down the UFO avenue, if you like. And that theory is not particularly popular with most of the people in the Bigfoot research field. I don't no, know why, not. you know, because for me, I just want the answers. I don't care if it's, you know, well, I, I don't care. I mean, it wouldn't, I would not mind if it was, you know, proved to be extraterrestrial or an unknown animal. You know, I just want to get the answers. Um, but the fact is, on many occasions where people have seen um, Bigfoot creatures, they've also seen UFOs or strange balls of light flitting around the creatures themselves as if they're giving off some sort of bizarre energy. Now, of course, the most glaring thing of all is that why is it, you know, in a country so advanced and as the United States, why is it that we're not able to catch um, or get solid evidence of creatures which are reportedly the size, you know, the size of a giant, you know, sort of seven to eight feet tall? You know, the idea that thousands, you know, or at least high hundreds in terms of numbers of these creatures all across the United States, seven to eight feet tall, and we can never catch one. You know, if we're talking about some an unknown little variation on a squirrel or something or a rat, you know, I could understand why we would never find one or catch one. But we're talking about gigantic-sized creatures, and we still can't catch them. You know, they never get hit by cars, um, you know, on the roads late at night. Um, they never die of old age and we find the bodies. Um, it's like Bigfoot is not just elusive, but Bigfoot is like 100% elusive. And no other animal operates like that. You know, everybody's at some point has seen like a mountain lion on TV or in the real world, you know, um, People see deers running across the road and they get hit by trucks or cars. Bigfoot eludes us 100% of the time. And I think this also explains why the portal angle explains why with Bigfoot we have this issue of like here one second, gone the next second mm -hmm. scenario. You know, Bigfoot vanishes almost, almost impossibly fast. And so I was inclined to think... But again, these aren't just sort of, um, you know, just regular animals, that they could be highly evolved entities that have the ability to, again, flit in and out of our world into other realms of existence and back again. And I think that would explain this sort of elusive aspect, uh, which should not happen. You know, we should not be in a position where after decades and decades we still can't even find one you know and um and i get it that they might be re really careful and uh, not to be hit by vehicles or shot by hunters etc etc but you know they shouldn't be um successful like that on a 100 percent situation you know but that's what happens so i do think that um there is a ufo component to the Bigfoot mystery, and that's why, you know, Bigfoot appears in the book. You know, some people say, well, Bigfoot isn't an alien, but I would sort of beg to differ and say, well, look at the data, and you might change your mind as to what you think these creatures actually are. Now, I uh, attended uh, the second annual Nebraska Bigfoot conference that was in Hastings, Nebraska, 
And uh, it was in 2018, uh, and I'm really glad that I went there. I got a, ch- a chance to talk to Bob Gimlin um, and a lot of people that were there, a lot of researchers. But to a person, they, they espoused the belief that Bigfoot was a flesh and blood creature, a as yet unknown, undiscovered uh, primate, and um, that they argued that it was a, a full-time, fully physical creature. And I said, what do you think about the idea of them being quasi-physical, uh, able to appear and disappear? And they said, um, we're not interested in that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the problem I have. You know, I don't mind, obviously, you know, different people having different views and theories and ideas because... That's the way we're going to get the answers, is by sharing the data and trying to come to some conclusion. But what does kind of frustrate me and anger me is the fact that some people in the Bigfoot field absolutely refuse to look at the the data that pushes it down like a, a paranormal angle. You know, it's one thing to investigate the paranormal side of Bigfoot and say, well, I looked into it and I don't believe it's valid for... A, B, C, X, Y, Z reasons. I have no problem with that. I do have a problem when people say, you know, I don't believe there's a paranormal component. And then I say, well, have you looked into it? No, I don't need to look into it. I just know it's not paranormal. Well, that that's not a rational way of doing research. That's being biased to begin with and not even bothered about looking at the data. Yes. Um Clyde, Claude, I just can't remember his last name, an older gentleman that uh, I've had on the show a few years ago. He believes in this quasi-physical existence that they're able to somehow come into our time and space in our realm and and just as easily leave. And uh, that seems to cover things much better to me, uh, we've had Nick in Lincoln, Nebraska, and outskirts, we've had reports, uh, not a lot, but we've had reports over the years of these Bigfoot creatures being seen. I've, I've made the, uh, the attempt at some humor there that with the way that the University of Nebraska offensive line has been playing this year that we need to expand our walk-on program and get some of these Bigfoot to play offensive line for us. (laughs) (laughs) Probably do really good. (laughs) Yeah, not only are are these Bigfoot very, very strong and massive, but they also are reported to be really stinky. And if you're a defensive guy running up to one of these, you'd go, oh, my God. Geez, change your gym socks. My goodness. Oh, I'm not getting close to you at all. <laughs> um, okay. You're right. I mean, uh, that would make like a formidable team, you know. A team of Bigfoot, they'd be unbeatable. <laughs> hey, let's let's now go to um, Linda Godfrey's uh, area of, of interest mm-hmm. that you've also covered in the book here, uh, reports of dogmen mm-hmm. and upright... Uh, if you will, wolves, hybrid humans. Mm-hmm. Well, 
yeah, this is probably one of the most controversial uh, portions in the book. Um, for people who don't know, the dogman phenomenon, um, in terms of visibility, really only kicked off about 20 years ago. And Linda Godfrey, uh, a Wisconsin-based um, journalist and, and author, was the, the one person more than anybody else who really began the research into this particular case. And much Many of the early reports began in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and people reported seeing, um, as you mentioned, like upright wolves or wolves that could run on four limbs um, but could also um, run and walk on two limbs, kind of in, in the same way that a bear will. You know, bears, for the most part, will run on, and walk on four limbs, but they can quite you know, easily stand up on two legs as well. Now... Of course, that image um, creates an image of, you know, classic werewolf, you know, from the Middle Ages. And it was kind of amusing in one sense and also interesting that just about anyone squirmed by having to use the term werewolf. And, um, you know, so that's where the term dogman and upright wolves, um, you know, came into play because people just didn't want to use the term werewolf because it, it provoked this imagery of like full moons and silver bullets and you know people changing from wolves to human and back again but what's interesting is the dogman phenomenon um there literally are only about one or two cases where people claim to have seen someone sort of change from one from an animal to a human and those that handful of cases are, you know, sort of very um, sort of suspicious, you know, in terms of the reality or not. So most people just report seeing this large wolf-like animal that has the ability to run on four legs and two. As I said, a lot of the reports are in Wisconsin, also Ohio and Michigan. And, um, and if you Google uh, Michigan Dogman, um, you know, you'll see... A, a, a huge amount of reports that have been cited. Now, one of the reasons why I mentioned this in the book is because during the course of her research, uh, researching, uh, Linda Godfrey um, was approached by a retired U.S. government operative who worked in the field of uh, remote viewing. Uh, remote viewing, for people who may not know, was a, a program that the U.S. government initiated in the 70s to sort of try and psychically spy on the Russians and the Chinese, etc. In other words, using the power of the mind to effectively um, see what's happening on the other side of the world, but you're able to sort of pick the imagery up in your mind. And this um, whistleblower-type character uh, that spoke to Linda said that at one point in the 80s, um, that the remote viewing team had actually um, tried to focus on these dogman-type creatures. And the claim was that they were, despite the fact that they looked sort of like werewolf-type, that they were actually extraterrestrials. And um, and it's a fascinating story of, of the U.S. government using the remote viewing projects to um, try and understand what these dogmen are. And the theory was that they were extraterrestrial, but interestingly also that they could come through different forms of reality into our world. So, you know, again, we've seen so many examples 
of these things jumping in and out of our world, which baffles us because, you know, we just don't have the ability to do that. Or at least, you know, most of us can't, you know, whether or not there are programs within governments that have achieved that, I, you know, I honestly don't know. But, you know, you can definitely see the threads between all these seemingly separate and unconnected creatures, but they're all made connected by this, the portal, the doorway, the Stargate um, aspect of all this. Colleen, do you want to add something here? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean like, uh, since I've, I've grown up with um, my native culture, and I'll reintroduce myself again. Uh, my name is Colleen Newholy. Um, I'm a member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Um, I grew up uh, living half on half in Pine Ridge and half in Macy, Nebraska here, just a couple hundred miles north uh, near Sioux City. And I grew up with a very traditional family. Uh, my grandmother had a lot of stories and my dad had a lot of stories, um, which are passed down, you know, through generations. And some of them were just fragments of older stories that had, you know, kind of lost its lost its uh, detail over the years. But we've always had uh, these stories that my grandmother would tell us, especially since we used to live on the, what they call the down bottom area in Macy. It's like, you know, this area of, of the reservation where it's near the Missouri River and there's a, a tribal park called... Uh, trying to think it's black black elk black elk yeah black elk park i've, I'm getting, I've, I've been there yeah I'm, I'm getting him mixed up with like a few other chiefs i'm sorry <laughs> anyway so um so we lived in an area where uh it was very flat you know we were there was a stream mile down the road on one side and there was a ri the river to the south of us sort of deal and you know my grandmother uh, would sit with us sometimes out in the evening and we'd, we'd be playing in the yard. And and she would always tell us, like, make sure to come, you guys come in after dusk falls because it's the time it's the time when the Nidas, and the Nidas are what you, could, what you would call, like, elemental-type beings. You know, they, they like hanging around springs or rivers or streams. Kind of, I guess you could say kind of like nymphs and stuff like that from Greek mythology, for if you want a comparison. But she always told us was that they come out in the evening times or at night because that was the time where they wouldn't be disturbed by humans because humans, you know, tend to uh, be aggressive towards things they don't understand, <laughs> sadly. So um, she would tell us about uh, how they would come. And she said they would have doorways that they would come through. Mm -hmm. And she told us some, some of these doorways are always open and some of these doorways are seasonal. So you might see these different be different beings during different times of the year as these different doorways are opening and closing. And so she warned us as well, like, you know, if you're going to go out and play in the cornfields or play, like, in anywhere in the woods, um, to be very careful where you're stepping because you might enter one of these doorways and we won't be able to find you. And... Because, you know, her tribe, the Omaha people, lost uh, a good portion of their traditional ways. Uh, they've also lost that information on how to find these doorways. 
uh, reports, Nick, from the Macy area that, that Colleen mentions of uh, Bigfoot sightings, encounters, um, large Black Panther encounters and sightings, mm-hmm. and reports also of little people. Yeah, little people. Um, and there's old stories of giant spiders, um, old stories of giant snakes, and old stories of uh, like these these beautiful women with like pale skin and in a long black hair and that that sort of thing who would come and you know take husbands and they would never be seen again <laughs> and and there's like all these different beings that my grandmother would tell us about too you know she would tell us about the owl people you know like she said she told us cuz this was after um the mothman movie came out and my my grandma was like those are the kind of beings my grandfather used to talk to mm. You know, she told she told us this story one time where she was in her grandfather's house because she was an orphan, so she lived with her, you know, her grandparents. And one night, um, she said this this strange man came into the yard and he was covered he was covered in tattoos and everything, and he had wings. And her grandfather went out to meet him, but she but he told her, her and her sisters to stay inside and not to come out. And that's what she said was they, uh, she said they were, they were um, the owl people, they had wings and, mm. you know, glowing red eyes and that sort of thing. And they, they would, they spoke, but she said to her, it sounded like gibberish, you know, garbled words, but her grandfather was able to communicate with them. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Colleen, for sharing that here. Yeah, thank you. Do, you. do you have anything that you want to say to kind of tie things up? We've got about 60 seconds here. Well, yeah, um, I think, you know, it's important to note that over the, you know, over the last 60, 70 years, there have been a lot of UFO alien encounters, but I think most people probably aren't aware of the sheer diversity of strange extraterrestrial creatures that have been reported. And that's the main reason why I wanted to, to write the book, was to demonstrate that we're not just talking about, you know, little little diminutive creatures with big heads and black eyes, you know, the image that everyone knows. And um, and hopefully, you know, people will realize this is sort of a, a worldwide phenomenon and that quite possibly the answers to, you know, the nature and the presence of them revolves around these doorways, portals, you know, stargates, whatever you want to term them, you know, and that um, they may be actually closer to us than we could ever really imagine. They could be quite literally around the corner, you know. Uh, Nick, where's the next place you're going to be at in terms of a conference or a, an event or a get-together? Um, last weekend in January, I'll be speaking at the what's called the Alien Snowfest in Big Bear Lake, California. <laughs> Appropriate there. Uh, until then, I hope you have lots of, of smooth sailing and good weather, my friend. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Thanks a lot, Scott. You are always welcome back on the show, Nick. Thanks. Thank you. Nick Redfern uh, lives in Arlington, Texas, the writer of many books. Today we focused on this big book by Visible Ink Press called The Alien Book, A Guide to Extraterrestrial Beings on Earth. And uh, you'll find more on Nick on Facebook, Nick Redfern, as well as his website, Nick Redfern. 4TN, that's F-O-R-T-E-A-N, dot blogspot, 
Um, Colleen, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? Um, today, I believe uh, we're going to be hanging out near Deluxe uh, for art thing that's going on there. You know, just in some native artist stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Tomorrow, we're most likely going cool. most like most likely we're just going to be cleaning up the house a bit because you know once they get busy things get piled up and you're just like but i don't want to do the dishes sure. i just got home i'm tired you yeah. understand sometimes <laughs> that, that the uh the ghost of nebraska wesleyan clara mm-hmm. mills is sometimes seen in and around the lux mm-hmm, mm-hmm. center so jim what are you doing the rest of the weekend uh just gonna stick around home you know do the usual stuff it's gonna be a nice day today so uh and we've got a guy out in the hall here that wants to come in and, and play on the radio. Stay tuned for... Vic. Yep. And he's going to be right up. Mr. Our, Valverde's coming yep, in. Our friend Victor, and he's going to be doing some beta radio. Uh, all things good music-wise, stay tuned. Hey, guys and gals, thank you so much for all your support. We're in our 36th year, uh, and we sure appreciate uh, hearing from you. Your support in all ways. Special thanks again to Frank from Omaha and Shelley from Canada for the prepaid phone cards. Uh, until next week, I'm Scott Colborn, Walk and Beauty.